Good morning. This morning I'd like to talk about a character in the scriptures <clears throat> that we might find an enigma to our contemporary way of thinking, our contemporary way of living, and maybe even our contemporary way of making excuses why we shouldn't live like him. And when it comes to excuses, I'm an expert on that subject, so I'm not pointing the finger at anybody. But he is a challenge to my life, and I hope he's a challenge to your life. Turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. We're talking about the challenging life and ministry of John the Baptist as we start the Gospel of Mark, or the Gospel according to Mark. And we want to think about this John the Baptist. And we want to think about how or what kind of important place he played in the New Testament, in the Gospels. And uh, look at it as more than just a history lesson. But how does this affect me? And how can I walk away with a practical encouragement or a practical challenge, seeing that this is speaking to me about me today? So bear with me. Hopefully it will be borne out. It says in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. Now, think about that phrase and see if it makes sense to you, the beginning of the gospel. Was this the beginning of the gospel? And if so, in what way? I remember when I first heard about the Lord Jesus Christ or when I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can tell you the day, the time, and the hour. And I walked away very naively thinking that that was the first time I heard the gospel. And of course I accepted the Lord because I see the truth in it. He opened my eyes, right? But then as I grew a little bit in my Christian life and I was humbled a little bit more, I realized, you know, I heard the gospel before that. I just can't remember a lot of it, probably because I wasn't listening. So was that the beginning of the gospel in my life, the day I got saved? No, actually it came before. And those were like seeds planted. I didn't know they were seeds planted. But there was a beginning before what I thought was the beginning. Now, perhaps you've had that experience. And I know oftentimes we think it's the most important thing when we help somebody to figure out what, when did you actually get saved? Is that really that important? Or is it important that you are saved? That you have forgiveness of sins? Some people, they can't, they can't put a finger on a date. That's okay. I just want to know that they understand the gospel. I want to see that they know the Lord, and I'll rejoice with them, and then it's part of a journey growing spiritually. But we don't want to assume somebody's saved if they're not, but at the same time, the beginning isn't necessarily when we think it is. Might come later. Okay. But the beginning of the gospel, when can you trace the true, the true beginning of the gospel? Now, it depends on how far back you look and how much you speculate, but I think none of us really have to speculate to go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? We call that, or I would call that, not, I didn't originate the term, but I found it somewhere, the prophetic beginning of the gospel. It reads, you remember... Adam and Eve had sinned, 
And God, of course, went to went after them, and um, there was a lot of finger pointing, you know. And eventually, the fingers landed on the serpent. And of course, sin has its consequences and has its result. But what God said to the serpent, "I will put enmity between you and the woman." And between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head. And you shall bruise him on the heel. So that is the first occurrence that I find in my Bible about some good news after the fall of man. God is going to send a deliverer, spoken of as the seed of the woman. And he's going to bruise the serpent or Satan in the head. In other words, a deadly blow. And he's not going to go unhurt. He'll be bruised in the heel. That is the, the one. So I look at that verse and I see the gospel. I see good news because gospel does mean good news. So in what way is this the beginning of the gospel if we can look back? And not only back to that verse. There's several verses all through scripture that point toward the deliverer in a sense of, hey, there's good news. God has a deliverer. And with time, he, uh, he revealed more and more about this deliverer until he should arrive on the scene. And so Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, what way was it the beginning? What way was it the beginning? That's an that's a interesting question, isn't it? I can hear the gospel several times. I can understand the good news. But it's not really an efficacious gospel until it's received with a heart of faith. It's believing God. The moment I believe God, it says that God gives me a new heart, makes me a new creature, gives me new desires. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That's the beginning. The Bible also calls it the new birth, being born again. When somebody's born, we consider that a beginning, don't we? And yet, the actual beginning of that child occurs before birth, doesn't it? And I know people argue about it, but we don't, right? <laughs> but the beginning that we mark comes a little later. So the gospel, the gospel. This is the beginning of an efficacious gospel. So we want to think about that. When is the beginning of an efficacious gospel in the heart and soul of an individual, and what is the preamble to it, precursor to it, and that's where we have the example in John the Baptist. Gospel, gospel. Now, think about this. Gospel, we all know gospel means good news, right? Okay. And it says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so it says who Jesus is, the Son of God. And if you look in John chapter 5, you'll find out that what that really means is God, uh, Jesus is God. He's equal with God. He is no less than the one that created us. All things were created for him and by him. Without him, nothing has been a created that, that was created. He created all things. In Matthew 1, verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translates means God with us. So, 
Is that good news? Was it good news at the time that God was going to take on flesh and come to earth? And here he is. Would that be good news? One might think, but I think we're answering the question with knowledge that we already have. It's like reading a book and going to the end, finding out the end, come to the beginning and say, oh, this is going to be good. Why? Because I know the ending. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm looking at it from the standpoint when John arrived at the scene, Mark writes, you know, a gospel, good news that Jesus Christ is God, came down to earth. Now, let me read this to you. And this is, see if you can capture what I think might have been in the minds of many people. It says in Isaiah 6, 1 through 5, what would they expect if God were to come to earth? Well, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, which two he, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, this is Isaiah the prophet, Woe is me. For I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we have to remember that God, as he describes himself and as we witness in his dealings with Israel throughout the whole Old Testament, God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. He's a God that cannot overlook sin. He can't smile at sin. And now he's going to come to earth that's filled with sinners. Now, is that good news? Now, we're not talking about an invading army. We're talking about an all-powerful God, one who you cannot escape from. There's no place you can hide. Though you run into a cave and say, mountain, fall on me, he can still snatch you out of there. So that, to me, didn't seem like good news at that point, what they would be expecting. But the true good news is when we realize how God came, why he came, and why he didn't come for what he didn't come for at that moment. And we find that good news in John chapter 3, verses we're familiar with. But let's let that sink in, how they expected God to come when he came to earth, to judge sin, to judge the uh, infidels, to judge the, the, the heathen, the sinners, of course, you know, if I consider myself a holy person, that doesn't include me, right? And there were people of the day that did that. But I don't think that was good news, thinking that God was coming to earth, because I would think of my sins as Isaiah thought of his sins. I'm going, I would think, I am undone. Oh, no. That's not good news. But this is the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, which he should have, but that's not why he came. But that the world should be saved through him. See, throughout God's eyes, sinners are those that are lost and need to be saved. Need 
That is their need, but God supplies our need. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So that's good news. We were expecting God, if he were to come to earth, we would be undone. We would be destroyed. He'd wipe us out just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And this place, quite frankly, is starting to look like that. Not this place, but this place. The world. It's incredibly scary what this world would be like in the hands of an angry God. And one day it's coming. But this time, when John the Baptist was announcing uh, the coming of the Lord, and John was writing about it, he said, this is the beginning of the good news. We've already heard the bad news. Bad news for us, that God is holy and we're sinners and he must judge sin. And it's interesting when you think of the consecutive order of events, a person really needs to hear the bad news before they can understand the good news. And so that God starts with that through the whole Old Testament. Okay, so God comes to the scene and he's not coming to judge the world, but he's coming to save the world. He's not coming to destroy it, not this time. So we see John the Baptist coming on the scene. Let's read through the verses and then we can talk about him a little bit. The beginning, uh, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Now let's talk about John the Baptist. Prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so now we're talking about, hey, there's a way to be forgiven for your, from your sins. Forgiving, forgiven of your sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So if you look at how many times John's mentioned in here, whether it's a pronoun or whether it's directly speaking of him, it's many, many, many times. And we would expect that as we see what the role of John the Baptist is in the New Testament. He's known as the forerunner. And we get that from Luke chapter 1. Let's read there, Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a certain priest named Zacharias, verse 5, of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous in the sight of God. That doesn't mean they were sinless. They were righteous, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. And they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now it came about, while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. 
And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. And Zacharias was troubled when he saw him, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give his name John. Give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to their Lord, to, their, to the Lord their God, and it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the Lord sent a forerunner that would announce his coming, that would identify who this Savior would be, the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll read in another verse, another portion of verse, he didn't, he didn't know him to recognize him. And so God gave him what to look for to recognize the Savior. So what do you think of when you think of forerunner? What do you think of forerunner? Someone that goes before and announces the arrival? It, it may take preparations, right? I think something we can relate to contemporary-wise is when a president, the president of the United States, pays a visit to a foreign nation. Preparation on a large scale is made before his actual arrival, and it has to be. For example, when the Clintons, and it could be any president, right, and wife, visited India years ago, scores of envoys and hundreds of FBI agents and CIA agents, as well as commando guards, were sent to comb all the cities that the Clintons were to visit in India. We probably did not read much of the background details about their visit, but a well-read weekly Indian news, Eastern Indian newspaper devoted 30 out of 50 pages to pictures and details about their visit. That's a pretty big entourage going as forerunners before a dignitary to that level would arrive. And they had a job to do. They had to check things out, make sure that his entrance would be as he expects it, without danger, right? Um, received in a manner that was worthy of his position. And that was a modern day, that's a modern day version of a forerunner. And John the Baptist plays that part in the gospel as announcing the coming of the Lord, of sharing the good news. And, and, and I'm wondering, well, how is this practical for us? How is this practical for us? You see, when I think of the beginning of the gospel, and I think when the beginning of the gospel happened in my life, I can't even remember it was probably when I was very young. And as my memory's not fading back that far, I can remember pieces of it. God sent forerunners. God sent people into my life to sow seeds. And the forerunner immediately before I met the Lord was Rick Bellis in my life. It might have been somebody else in yours. It might have been just through the word of God. God planted the seed. Next thing you know, he walked into your life, opened your eyes, you accepted the Lord, and it, and it didn't take somebody's presence for that to happen. You know that you're a forerunner? God's called you to be a forerunner? God's called you to share the good news with those that don't know? 
God has called you to be a John the Baptist. He's called me to be a John the Baptist. And John the Baptist fulfilled his ministry. In the end, didn't go well with him. But God gave him high praise. Among those born of women, none greater. So let's think about that. I think, how, you know, if God calls me to be something, I want to be good at it. And God, um, God doesn't withhold from me the way to get good at it. Okay? So let's think about John the Baptist. Let's take these verses and let's take them apart and let's describe him. How would you describe John the Baptist? Okay? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Okay, my messenger is talking about John the Baptist. And God calls me to be a messenger to those that he sends me to. So, how would you describe John in that verse? Can you see any word that might describe him? Behold, I will send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Does it require that this messenger be faithful to his calling? God says, I'll send you. But does God override our will in the matter? No, he doesn't. He can send you, and you could be disobedient to that calling. John wasn't. John was obedient to the calling. Very important calling. Now, if you were to be called to be a forerunner of somebody important in this life, like called into the White House, and we want you to announce the president at an event in your neighborhood coming to a town near you, would you be all excited about that? Some people would. But you've been called to announce the Lord of glory into the life of someone that doesn't know them, someone that's dying in their sins. Will you be faithful to that calling? Will I be faithful? And I, and I think everyone here can relate to that. I'll, I'll put myself right at the top of the list. Times where I've not been faithful to that calling. Times where I knew God wanted me to share with someone and I didn't. For one reason or another, I didn't. No fault of God's, no fault, lack of opportunity. Whether it was laziness, whether it was fear, rejection, whatever the reason, we all know that that's a possibility. But one uh, one thing John was, he was obedient, right? He was faithful. He was faithful. He continued, no matter how hard it was. It says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That voice, that word voice there speaks out to me. He was outspoken, wasn't he? He wasn't shy. He wasn't timid. He's crying out in the wilderness. The voice was heard. You know, and, 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 and when I look at John, I mean, we'll give an overall appraisal of his life, how you would describe him. But I've heard several times in my life that, oh, I'm just trying to live a Christian life so other people can see the Lord in me. I'm thinking, well, that's good. He wants them to hear about the Lord from you. He wants you to use your voice to speak. Of course he wants your life to harmonize with that voice. He doesn't want hypocrites. He doesn't want people to be able to level that accusation. Oh, some Christian you are. Look at the life you're living. No. So people work on their lives, but then they don't say anything? 
you know? And maybe it's my nature, but what came first in my life was my mouth. And then the life sort of tagged behind me a little slowly, but coming along, still working on it. But there's the opposite. There are those that are working on their lives, and they're too timid or afraid. They don't want to speak out because, oh, they're not really interested. How do you know? How do you know? So he was outspoken in a good way. We want to follow his example and be true to our calling. We need to be outspoken. We need to realize when I go to work, there's eight guys that I'm working with that don't know the Lord. And the Lord's put me in their life. Why? To be outspoken in a good way for the Lord. To be faithful to that calling. He was passionate. He cried out in the wilderness. Can people see your passion for the Lord? When you start talking about the Lord, do people see your excitement? Or when you talk, start talking about something else, they say, wow, that person's really excited about that. Do they say that person's really excited about God? That's a pretty convicting question. I know it is in my life. What do I show excitement and passion about? Is there anything more important? Is there any person more lovely, more wonderful? We use the word awesome. God owns that word, you know. We misuse it all the time, but he owns that word. He is awesome. But is our passion for him show that, how awesome he is to us? Does it show that I, I have a personal relationship with this awesome God? And he's made it so that I can have that. That's no disrespect, no lack of reverence, because he is awesome. He was in the wilderness. What does that say? I mean, he was in the wilderness. It's not, I mean, it was not a good place to be. Wild animals in the wilderness there. Lions, you know, and other things. And I, and I see in John here, he had a healthy, he was, how can I say this? My grammar's going to kill me here. Um, he was, in a healthy way, he was detached from worldly attractions. Right? He was in the wilderness. He could have lived in a house. Right? Important position like he had, forerunner of the Lord. Well, yeah, nothing wrong with having a house, right? Nothing wrong with having a bed. Oh, nothing wrong with having a feather blanket when it's cold. And on and on and on and on and on. But he forego, he forwent, forgot, I don't even know how to say it. He didn't go after those things, right? They weren't important to him compared to his calling. As a matter of fact, I kind of think that what he did, he shunned those things so there wouldn't be an attraction to those things. Because those things have a way of creeping into our hearts. And without us knowing it, they're a bigger attraction than what we would have purposed for them to have in our lives. Okay? So I see that he had a detachment from worldly attractions. He was quite, quite a man of God. Quite a man of God. Um... He said, make ready the way of the Lord and make his path straight. What does that say? I mean, it's really implying that you have crooked paths in your life. You're sort of crooked. I mean, we are. We're all crooked. We're all sinners. He was not worried about offending someone with the truth. Now, he didn't seek to offend somebody. But, you know what they say, if the shoe fits, wear it. Jesus came to save the lost sinners that are on their way to hell. Are you one of those? Because I, I was, right? And he came to save me. So if we don't speak the truth, we don't seek to share the truth, if we're afraid of what will they think? 
if I mention the word Jesus, what will they think of me? If I mention the word sin, oh no, I'm confirming their, fear, their fears. You know, um, he wasn't afraid. Make his path straight. Okay, so um, it says John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What kind of message was this? Did you think about that? Baptism for the forgiveness of sins, the remission of sins. So all you have to do is get baptized and your sins are forgiven. Is that what he was preaching? Well, we know baptism or salvation is not by works, but try to answer the question here. What were they believing? What message were they hearing? Because down the road we're going to hear, well, what should I do? Well, you do this. What should I do? Do that. What should I do? Do this. So John was given what to do, right? So is it do this and you get forgiven? So how do you answer this question? Just what was the good news? What was the message? And how does it fit in with all the verses that describe what John did? You see, because when he spoke, he spoke to a group of people that were really sincere. He realized, yeah, I'm a sinner. And if the Lord's coming, I want to get right with him before he gets here. <laughs> and there were those that thought, well, I'm all right. But they saw everybody else reacting that way. So they just joined the crowd. I mean, John calling you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Pretty bold statement, isn't it? To the religious leaders. Bring forth fruits, meet with repentance. In other words, don't come here and tell me you repent. I want to see. And people say, well, well, what should I do? What's the difference between those groups? And what's John saying? Listen, words mean very little. Show me the life. Show me the life, and I'll believe what you say. Now, the sincere people were saying, well, what can I do? What can I do? You know, how, how, how can my life show? And then he started listing practical ways. But what was he saying? You change these practical things in your life and then, and then you get forgiven? What was the repentance that he was talking about? Repentance from stop doing this and start doing that. Is that what he was talking about? It doesn't sound true. It doesn't ring true, does it? Because that would be by works. So I believe what he was saying is they were living in disbelief. They were living, not believing God. God must judge sin. And God is a fearful, holy God, all-powerful God. You can't get away from him. If you believe that, would you just keep sinning? Would you live a lifestyle of sin? So they were living a life not of faith. They didn't believe God. They weren't worried about it. And now here comes someone that says, oh, you know, you need to repent you need to believe God because the kingdom's coming. And so that repentance was, was going from disbelief to believing. From not having faith to believing God, having faith in what God said. And so that having faith is the kind of faith that produces a change in your life. That's how we tell legitimate faith. Is why? Because your life changes. Can you imitate some of those changes if you don't have faith? Yeah. I know people that have stopped smoking, stopped swearing, stopped committing immorality, immoral acts, and they don't know the Lord. They've cleaned up their life, but that doesn't mean somebody knows the Lord. But try to continue that on, you know. That'd be hard to continue down that road. But a person that does know the Lord, that does have faith, who has a changed heart, 
who has new life, he might stumble and fall, but he's going to get back up, and you're going to see it in their life. When I first got saved, you know, Rick never told me, okay, now that you're saved. He kept saying, time will tell. I was convinced I was saved, but maybe I shouldn't be. I don't know. <laughs> All I knew is I headed right from there to the Bible store, get a Bible. And I called him, hey, Rick. Uh, and he's thinking, oh, no, here it comes. He's going to say, change his mind and all that stuff. He's going to not want me to call him. He said, I'm at the Bible store. I don't know which quite about it. There's a ton of Bibles here. What do I get? New American Standard, New King James. Let's see, this one's up. And he's like, oh, okay. <laughs> then he told me to get a New American Standard at the time, so I did. So he was refreshed in thinking that, oh, I thought he was going to bail on me, and he's actually going and getting a Bible. I didn't tell him to go get a Bible. Hmm. And then... Uh, and then I can remember he told me, hey, you know, there's a Friday night Bible study at Gene Gibson's house. No, he said, there's a Bible study on Friday nights. I go, you mean the Friday night thing at Gene Gibson's house? He goes, yeah. He goes, I think maybe you should check it out. I said, I've been going for three weeks. <laughs> I go, you think maybe I'm saved? You know, it's a standing joke because there was a change in my life. And as I grew, more changes become evident. But, you know, in your heart, when you know the Lord, you, you know you know the Lord, but nobody else does. They're waiting to see changes in your life. And when I went to Fairhaven and people, Rick would introduce me to somebody, they'd always say, hey, so are you a Christian? Yeah. Tell me how you got saved. Oh, about the third person in, I know, okay, I know what they're checking for. They're checking if I understand the gospel, which is a good thing to do. Right? So what we're talking about here, repenting, is stop living in disbelief. Believe God. Believe what he says about sin. Believe what he says about the coming judgment. Believe what he says. There's only one escape, and that's through my deliverer. And he's about to arrive on the scene. And then if I look at it that way, everything fits into place. You know, I, I really wanted it. When he said, time will tell, I said, what do you mean? He says, well, your life will change. Well, how will it change? Oh, he didn't want to tell me. <laughs> God will tell you, right? If he gave me all the kids, you're going to do this, this, and this, and this. If I wasn't saved and I wanted to be saved, and I wasn't saved, and I want everybody to think I was saved, I could just do those. I can go to Bible bookstore and buy my Bible. I can start to go on the Friday night thing, because people went to those things, and they didn't know the Lord. But he wanted to see the Lord bring about change in my life. And that's what John is expecting to see when he says, repent. What he's saying, believe God. He says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. How simple is that? A person doesn't seek God if he thinks God's going to kill him. Right? Going to burn him to death. No, he thinks, wow. And even when I, you know, when, I, when Rick asked me, you think you deserve to go to hell? I said, yeah. And then he said, what makes you believe that? Because he didn't believe me. And I started telling him what my life was like. He goes, oh, maybe he does believe it. But, you know, deep down inside, I knew there must be some good news here. Right? Why does everybody like the Bible if it's bad news? There's got to be some good news in there. Right? It's been around for a long time. And so what was in my heart was this faith that said, I'm seeking God. There must be a reward for that. He's a rewarder of those that seek him. Of course, I believe in him or I wouldn't be seeking him. That'd be silly. Right? And so it's faith. It's the life of faith that pleased God because it's not of works. He's picked one thing that he requires of us that doesn't take anything to uh, force yourself to do. It doesn't take strength. It doesn't take maturity. 
It doesn't take uh, a degree. A child can believe that's how simple it is. And that's all they require, just believe me. Oh, I believe in God. You know how many times I hear that? Yeah, but you don't believe what he says. Well, not everything. Well, then what you're saying is he's lying about those things you don't believe in. God can't lie. So that's not faith. So he's saying repent, believe for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Okay, so that drew a crowd. Wow, here's good news. God's coming. And we can be forgiven our sins. And all we have to do is believe it. That's wonderful. How, do you, how effective do you think he was at that ministry? This is only the first step. When you think about it, I started reading about it. Let's think about it. What does it say in John chapter 1, 10 and 11? You know, 11 and 12. He came to his home, and his own received him not. But to those that received him, he gave the right to become children of God, those that believe in his name. So he came to his own. They didn't receive him. So how deep was the repentance in some of these individuals? How deep? Does that speak to you? How many times have you shared the gospel with someone? How many times have you reached out to be a forerunner? Hopefully that Christ was going to follow in behind and he was going to know the Lord. Only to find out, nope, not this season. Nope, not this year. Nope, not this decade. You're not in bad company. It's not we that save people. It's God that does. All we do is we make the announcement. All we do is we go after, share the message. We can't make them believe. There's no, you know, sometimes, <laughs> you know, sometimes when we get this idea of I just take them over to Howard's and you share the gospel with them, he'll get saved, you know? Is that a lack of faith or what? Now, Howard knows the gospel, you know, but I can, I can take him to a child 12 years old that understands the gospel and God can use the child. And he might prefer to use the child than Howard or me. You know, nobody's got a corner on the market on the gospel. Just like children. You know, God gives children to mostly everybody. One way or another. And it doesn't take a special individual. We're all called to be forerunners. And we leave the results with God. But we should be faithful. So they were all going out to him. Then he, they were being baptized by him. So what's that say, being baptized? We, we, we baptize people here, water baptism, right? And it's a picture. So we can really translate some of those thoughts. It's a public proclamation. I know I'm a sinner and I need to repent. I believe what God says about it and I'm changing. And I'm going to tell everybody I'm getting baptized. It's a public event. Right? Associating with the forerunner means you're looking forward to the he that is, is to follow. And they were confessing their sins. What does it mean to confess your sins? You know, there's some groups out there, just name it. Just name your sin. Oh, I'm sorry. I lied. Forgive me, Lord. I'm sorry. I killed a person. Forgive me, Lord. Does that sound like confession to you? See, because the confession that I see in the scripture is accompanied by godly sorrow over our sins. It's not just, oh, just name it and God will forgive you. And if you don't, can't remember everything, that's okay. He'll cover those bases too. 
It's, it's sort of like a, uh, you know, a sterilized kind of thought process when it comes to confession. You know, um, confession should bring sorrow. And oftentimes it's easy to tell, not always, it's easy to tell when somebody apologizes because they're sorry for somebody, but it's just a technicality. Oh, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And you'd say, well, yeah, of course, you're obligated to. You're a Christian, right? <laughs> but are they really sorry? I tell you, you know when I'm really sorry? Because I'll probably say it about three times and it won't be right in a row. I'll come back the next day, you know, I'm really sorry. I'm so thankful that you've forgiven me. Why? Because it goes deep. It goes deep. True confession should go deep. It should, it's not just saying it. It's being sorrowful with a godly sorrow. It says John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. Wow, it's quite a wardrobe, huh? In two ways. Not only the substance, but the quantity. He traveled light in this world. If we're going to be forerunners for Christ, we should consider traveling light in this world because the multitude of possessions can bog us down. And I've moved, I think, in the first, I don't know, maybe 10 years of our married life, we moved like 14 times or something like that. I, I hate moving. You know why? When you move, then you find out how much stuff you've accumulated. We made a clean start when we came back from Brazil. <laughs> Allowed two suitcases each. I got double corrugated cardboard boxes, the exact side of what's required. Okay, you get two, two boxes, size of suitcases. Whatever you fit in there, you can take. Whatever you don't, we're getting rid of. Because we're tr changing countries here. We're not going to ship anything. But... Uh, I'd hate to move now. <laughs> it has a way of growing, all that stuff has a way of growing on you. <laughs> One thing I like about John that I'll say, he shunned the comfort zone. He shunned the comfort zone. Now, when I say comfort zone, you have to think about your own life because not everybody's comfort zone is the same. Right? You might not mind doing activities with a bunch of your friends and inviting people over. But one-on-one, -on -one, talking to people about their sins, uh, I'm not good at it. Well, it's not because it's not your comfort zone, right? Wearing a leather, camel-haired, leather belt kind of thing would be out of my comfort zone. But if God called me to wear it, I'd like to think I would, you know? I've had a lot of irritable sensations on my skin, being in Brazil and the Amazon with those mosquitoes biting you everywhere and you know, allergies you never knew you had, you know, scratching stuff till you bleed kind of thing, you know. Um, comfort zone. It said he ate locusts and wild honey. I, I learned from a very strict mother that I'm sure it was for my own good, which I'm glad for now, you eat what's put in front of you. No ifs, ands, or buts, and you finish it. I remember one time I really wanted to please her. She served up some steak, and it had like an inch round of fat around it. I ate it all. I ate it just to please her. <laughs> she wasn't impressed. <laughs> but there's people that are picky about their food. Macaroni and cheese. That's all I eat. Oh, okay. Um... You ever think about being a missionary? You better get over that one. <laughs> you ever think about having, going over somebody's house and they serve something? Oh, 
and then you leave everything on your plate, or a majority of them, what do you think they think? They're not, they're not impressed. I remember when I was on the, the porch in Brazil, first time I went to the interior, we were invited, it was getting dark, and there was water all around us, and we had chicken and rice, and I thought, this is pretty good. It's like a picnic on a porch in the Amazon, you know? And the stars are out, and what do I do with bones? I just throw them in the river. Oh, seriously? Yeah, that's what they do. Oh, oh, you sure? Yeah. And before it hit the water, something jumped out of the water. And it's sort of dark, so I don't know what it is. I go, that was weird. One bone. What was that? Piranha. Oh. Hmm. And you see little kids walking around on these little planks, and you think, wow, don't get your toes in that water. You know, that's weird. And then, he's, and then the, the, it's starting to get dark, and it's kerosene lamp lit, so it's really dim. And you're eating the rice, and you're starting to, the rice is moving. There's moving? Yep. Looks like they got wings on the kernels of rice. Is that, yep. What are they doing? They're eating it. Okay. So you eat it. Why? Well, because you don't want them to think that you're too good to do what they do, to eat what they eat. How are you going to share, be a forerunner for Christ? If, oh, I'm not going to eat that. They're going to relate to you? Oh, you're coming from a different world. We eat what's put in front of us here. Why? Because if we don't, we starve. So that's another way that we can, well, how am I going to be a forerunner? I got to get out of my comfort zone. If it meets, means eating something that seems like it might not taste good, well, if you're exercised in doing that, he wore that camel skin jacket or whatever it was. You know, his skin was accustomed to that through wearing it, through the practice. You get accustomed to eating different foods, and it won't be a big deal. I like eating strange things, but the problem I found is I, don't, I like you know, strange things because if I like strange things and other people think it was strange... I'll get more of it. So in Brazil, one uh, delicacy is chicken hearts. Barbecued chicken hearts. Oh, they're so good. People think, huh? I'm not going to eat that. Well, in Brazil, they're just expensive by the pound or by the kilo as filet mignon. Right, Janio? Corazão de frango. And you barbecue those things and you slide them into some French bread and you eat those. Oh, man, they're so good. And I was the only one that ate them for a while until my family found out how good they were, and then everybody wanted them. You see? Now I can't have them all by myself, but that's not a bad thing. It just goes to show you something that you don't like or you think you don't like, you can get used to. And then the next thing that I'm eating, something weird, they want to try it now. I don't know, you don't want to try it. This is really bad. <laughs> so it's, it's um, training yourself, training yourself. And John the Baptist was exercised in doing those things. Why? Because he wanted to please the one that called them. He must increase, I must decrease. His whole life goal was pointing people to the Savior, was glorifying God. He says, as he was preaching and saying, after me, one is coming who is mightier than I. And I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandal. He was humbled in the presence of God. I baptize you with water, but he, when he comes, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. 
Wow. That was a forerunner. And that's a good model to follow. And so I think it, is, it behooves me to see how I can model my life more after how he lived his life. Losing attraction to what the world has to offer. Suffering hardship one way or another. Could be a physical hardship, could be a financial hardship, could be a psychological hardship. Could be pain that someone causes you, you know. Um, there's social hardships. You know, I, I work with people, and I'm one of them myself. They're people that are sort of strange. And I know that I'm not always easy to get along with, and it's not easy to communicate with somebody that's maybe awkward and stilted. And it's uncomfortable, and it takes work. I have to get outside of my comfort zone to do that. And some people have to get outside of their comfort zone to talk to me. That's another comfort zone that we think, wow, you know what? I want to, Lord, I want to work on getting out of my comfort zone if it means uh, pleasing you, if it means being faithful to my calling. I mean, if we're just being comfortable around here and waiting for the Lord's return, I think we're going to be sadly disappointed at what he has to say to us. Let's pray. Lord, we do come before you, and we thank you so, so much for your word and for the examples in your word. We thank you that we can be convicted and challenged with the desire, Lord, to please you better in our lives, Lord. And we do pray that in when, any way we've settled into a comfort, a comfort zone, that you would reveal to us what that comfort zone is. Help us to get ourselves out of it with your help so that we might be fruitful, that we might see fruit to please you, we pray in your name. Amen.